Learning about new technology is hard, and we can save a lot of time if we get help from others. This episode, I'm talking to Sean Wang, better known on the internet as Swix. He talks about how he was able to get the attention of people like Dan Abramov of the React Core team by doing things like summarizing conference talks and publicly sharing what he was learning and having trouble with. He calls this strategy learning in public, and we go into why you should consider doing it too. We also cover a wide variety of other topics like why technical books are underrated, navigating a technical career, and why it's fine for Amazon's developer experience to be eh, just okay. I'm Jeremy Jung, and you're listening to Software Sessions. I hope you enjoy my chat with Swix. So I did a computer science bachelor's, and nice. it's kind of interesting seeing kind of like how you learned because, you know, when I went through school, I wasn't super passionate. Like, I think particularly because when I was going through school, a lot of it was data structures and algorithms and stuff like that. And it was a little bit disconnected from when I first started where I was like, I'm going to make games, I'm going to make like kind of cool GUIs <laughs> and stuff. And like when I get to school, it's like there's none of that, right? Yeah. And and it's really on me where like I should have been seeking that stuff out on my own. It wasn't until like a few years later, like after I had started working, where I really started enjoying the process, enjoying learning about the technologies and building stuff. Looking at what you were doing, I was like, oh, I definitely should have been <laughs> doing that when I was going through school. Well, I mean, you're still figuring out what you want when you're still in college, you know? Yeah, I, I went to school for finance and mm-hmm. I no longer do that. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Don't I mean? Don't don't live life with too many regrets. You know, it's not worth it. I fell into this way of learning because of other people. So I all I'm doing is like trying to spread the message and. There will be more beneficiaries of this than than me. I, I'm definitely lacking a lot of things that you learned in college. Uh, I'm trying to make up for it. I really want to take an OS course. I want someone to force me to do a basic operating systems course because I now have to, you know, interact with them and, and I don't know what a syscall is and I don't know the details of memory allocation and all that. Like, but like on some level, it doesn't matter because <laughs> mm-hmm, right, what exactly. Part of, <laughs> what part of stack it? Well, well, depends what part of the stack you you want to work in. But um, also, yeah. like, I I just don't have the option available to me if I wanted to mm-hmm. go further down the stack. I just don't. I still I still personally do wish that I I, I did a CS degree. So I, I definitely mm-hmm. I'm just saying I'm just saying like I I definitely did not catch up with what you already know <laughs> just from my bullshit like web de- web dev stuff. But it's enough to get a job. Which is absurd. This is the only career where it's high paid, and you can you can get up there in like three months ish. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like, like like maybe maybe you won't be amazing. You, you're not gonna write like you're not gonna be like Jeff Dean or something at Google, you know. But like you, you can get by decently, and that you get paid the same as like a doctor or a, or a lawyer, and that's that's right, ridiculous. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I found that <laughs> I found that to be pretty. Pretty insane, though. Though I will say, you know, when you were talking about like you can get a job in like just three months or whatever, but your your background, like it's, it's really, yeah, it's really not the three month boot camp, right? Like you had sort of a a much longer tail in terms of all the things that you learned at your previous jobs. I mean, you, you said you you had used Haskell, right? That's before you went to the boot camp. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not speaking for myself in in in, in terms of the three month thing, but I have seen my fellow boot camp people get good jobs. Obviously, there's a failure rate as well. Some people don't make it, but it doesn't happen for medicine or, or law. Yes, instead yeah. it's like six years, eight years. And then yeah. like you've kind of talked before, when people learn something, it's sort of like normal for them to share what they've learned. Also, you, we'll, we'll promote you for it if you do a great job. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it's, but, just, it's just fun. Uh, I think when I first 
heard about you is, you know, I, I kind of read Hacker News uh, relatively regularly. And I remember you had made a post and you were, you were saying like, you know, I used to be in finance, I'm going to do this boot camp. And so I'm doing this podcast where I interview people in my, my class. And, (laughs) and just like a few years later, now you're like all over the place. Like you've got all these blog posts, you're moderating the React subreddit. You were recently a senior dev at NetLify. And I was like, this is crazy. Like this, um, you know, this guy who is talking about going into a boot camp, you know, just a few years ago, now he's doing so many things, and I think there's a lot of lessons that that people can learn from your experience, like starting their careers, learning how to learn, and just deciding like how to progress in general. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to write it down. Basically, I have a lull between jobs. Uh, I'm going to join Amazon by the time this comes out. So this is the only time I feel like I can write a career advice book because. After this, I kind of want to focus on other things. And if there's anything I can help to share my experiences with with other developers. Because I guess I guess I had a relatively fast trajectory. You know, I, I finished my boot camp at the end of 2017, um, started my first dev job in January of 2018, and then just got hired at Amazon at an L6 level in March of 2020. That's a relatively fast trajectory for anyone. I'm I'm not completely new to programming. You know, I I I, I have done some code before, uh, but then also I I do attribute a lot of that to uh, the ability to just learn very quickly in public, and uh, a lot of people, you know, I think it's a it's an alien concept. Like they they like vaguely know it's a good idea. I think they don't know how good. <laughs> Mm. (laughs) Um, and just the the relative rarity of people doing it means that just being part of that population makes you stand out and that's very beneficial for careers even before the current situation we're in which is now now everything's online so your professional profile in fact doesn't actually have a physical presence anymore so you 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 do have to <laughs> you do have to do everything, like you don't have to become a celebrity. A lot of people are like, ah, uh, like you have to be an influencer. No, it's more about just like having a place that you call home online. Um, and you as a developer have an abnormal amount of control over over that, and you should exploit that as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, like when you talk about like learning in public or whatever and you talk about like exploiting that right where it's it's it almost makes it sound like the fact that you are learning in public is actually a big benefit to you it's like you're getting things from people whereas i think a lot of people when they think about oh i'm going to write a blog post or i'm going to make this tweet or whatever um sometimes it's like i'm going to be helping other people but maybe it's also like a big part of it is the opposite as well yeah i mean look it's a plus if it helps other people but it's completely self-centered like, <laughs> and, and I think I think that's good. That that means that you have the motivation to stick in this thing for a long haul. I think a lot of people get started blogging or whatever, and they don't see much immediate result, and then they get discouraged. Uh, and that's because they they base their their self validation on others. It's not worth anything if it if no one else reads the blog or likes it or reshares it or whatever. And that's not very healthy in terms of like the way the way that you should approach your learning. So you should learn for learning's sake, and then if other people benefit, uh, that's a plus. So I, I, I kind of like you know, it's not an act of altruism. This thing, like, it, it genuinely is the fastest way to learn, um, and you're growing your, your knowledge, but also your network. And it turns out that <laughs> your network is also super important uh, for your career. So I, it comes hand in hand, and I, I don't have to separate them. So I, I just do them together. 
I think one of the things about this concept of learning in public, a, a lot of people are not really sure where to start or, you know, if they do, what they start with is they start with a blog or they start with a Twitter account. And, you know, I think what a lot of people run into, myself included, is you can make a post and, you know, you don't have a lot of traction in terms of people viewing it. So you don't know if it's like if it's helpful to people and you're not really sure if you're writing the right thing. And so I kind of wonder, like, in your opinion, like, how should you approach that? Like, how do you decide um, what to write and, and how do you get it in front of people so that they can help you out and help you learn and, and, and kind of go from there? Yeah, I oh my god, I have so many responses to that. <laughs> so so I'm gonna rattle off a few quick responses. First of all, it's not always about writing. Um, you cannot you can also just do speaking. You can do, you can do cheat sheets like organizing instead of writing writing a blog post. You know, it's I don't want people to equate uh, learning public to writing a blog. That's not the only category. In fact, I I have like five categories. I have a talk on learning public and and I had, I had a bunch of them. Um, so it's not just. Uh, blog more, although blogging is 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 kind of like the minimal viable thing, and it and it's it scales extremely well. So I, I do recommend that. Um, the other thing is, oh god, <laughs> so many responses. Okay, so so uh, let's 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 just talk about the the immediate first thing that you should do. I, I also really want to stress that it's uh, it's something that you do for yourself, right? So whatever you're interested in, and you should write about, even if no one else reads it, it's fine. What we're really talking about here is an optimization step on top of the, just the formal act of, of writing down what you learn and, and organizing your thoughts and, and what you already know. So the optimization step is how do you get attention on when you have no following, right? The, I call this like the cold start problem. It's like a little bit of the chicken and egg. Everybody wants feedback. Even I want feedback, right? I, and, and that helps me load the trigger for the next action, which is the next talk, the next blog post, the next uh, podcast interview. And that's, that's hugely motivating. But when, you, when you're just getting started, you don't have that yet. Um, so you need to find yourself in a situation where people have no choice but to respond to you, right? And those situations exist. The way that I phrase this is pick up what they put down. So whoever it is you look up to, they are experts in their field. They're also extremely busy. But they also have things that they want feedback on. They also have things that they don't have time to do. So if you follow them closely and you want to help, um, just pick up on what they put down. Like it literally is like, hey, they have a new project out. Go try it out. Try out the demo. There's probably something wrong there. Go fix the demo. If they have a new book out, go read the book, give feedback, um, whatever. Like then you, you, you like slowly work yourself into becoming a trusted collaborator. Because I guarantee you, no matter how popular that person is that you follow, no one picks up on all their stuff, right? Like, we all have our own stuff to do. But if you have that time on your hands and you want guaranteed feedback, that's the way you do it because they need to be responsive to their early adopters. And guess what? That's you, right? It's kind of unfair, but like it's a hack. It's, it's, it, I, I literally call it a hack. They, they have to respond to you because that's, that's just a contract of like, hey, I put out something. Someone gives, gives me feedback. I have to respond to them. You know, and it really works for any sort of project. You know, it could be an open source library, it could be a demo product or book. You know, it really depends. Whatever, um, like even if it's a talk, like hey, I just I just did this new talk. Do a summary, right? Do do like a bullet point, like this. This is what I learned, and then they they'll immediately reshare it because you added value for them. And the one thing that you have that that they don't like, absent of any other knowledge, the one thing that you have that they don't is you have the beginner's mind. Like they're the expert. They've been in this for so long, they, they kind of lost the ability to relate to, to beginners. But you, as a recent beginner, you have the ability to communicate uh, across that knowledge, knowledge gap because you, you, you're, you're sort of bringing along people with them. But the more in their heads you can get, um, the better. <laughs> but like, 
that's that's a real that's a really good hack because they they already have followings and they're they're likely to start to see you as a collaborator, uh, especially if you prove to be a good collaborator, um, <laughs> and 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 that will kickstart your following in a huge way. I didn't really think about this when I was starting out, but like now that like if I was starting from scratch, that's exactly what I would go for, and it's pretty logical to see a straight path to like okay I I you know I will draft off of this this other person. I think the the summary is a is a pretty good example because you know there's so many like really great conference talks but um, if you look at like the the YouTube view counts for conference talks like they're usually like relatively low compared to a lot of other content right sure but but there's so much knowledge that's kind of in these videos and so if you can extract all of the kind of high level facts or kind of the big takeaways and just summarize that for people like that helps so many other people right because they can just look at the summary and figure out like oh do I want to watch the video do I need to watch the video that makes a lot of sense to me so Wikipedia calls this the 99 one rule, uh, yeah, 90-9-1 or something like that. Then the, it's kind of like a 90-10 law. Basically, like a lot of internet consumption is completely passive. 90% of people just view or read and never say a word. 9% will comment and then 1% will actually create. So you automatically vault into the top 10% just by commenting on, on something. And if you create something based on their work, then they just, they have to respond to you. They, they, there's just no choice. So you, so you can guarantee yourself not only some, some response, but you also read, get readership from people you care about, which is actually like the, the, the real thing. Like I, I don't really participate in like this, this gaming of like follower accounts or anything, um, but like I care about connecting with people who I can learn from, who are, who are my mentors and who I might work with in the future, right? So I think that's, that's really the, the main reason that I participate online. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's healthy because like ultimately... You know, I, uh, Naval Ravikant, who's, who's one of these like VC types, says like it's it's better to be famous. No, it's better to be um, rich and unknown than it is to be famous and poor, or something like that. Like like you should only have a network to the extent that it get, helps you get shit done. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that makes sense. And if like once you start taking on more than that, and and starting to base your self worth and your income and your livelihood on being an influencer or a celebrity, then you start being a product, and you start being controlled by your audience. Anyway, that's that's like that's like way far out from where we started. Which we're just starting sure. with, talking about getting started. I'm just saying, like, play for the right reasons, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because because this is a hugely rewarding thing because people are out there wanting to look for and connect with good collaborators. Um, but if you start getting gamified, um, then then you start to go down a really dark path. The, the the point the point being like just the best way to get started is 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 through that if you if you care about getting engagement so one of my one of the people that I that I um, helped to mentor their first blog post was about explaining man pages you know like the mm. Linux bash bash command and I'm like mm-hmm. sure but like I don't get up in the morning and go like I really wish I could read a blog post about man pages you know like it's not something that like I I really want it's good to write about things that you're super interested in it's fine just don't expect like that to be the most popular thing or to get immediate feedback on that but like if, it's, mm-hmm. if something's new if something is being put up by someone influential in the community and you want to collaborate and jump in that's a pretty much sure bet and when you talk about like jumping in and providing that feedback or providing summaries, things like that, you know, what's the the best way to to get that out there? Like, you know, are you um, making a blog post and and emailing the person? Are you, um, you know, are you adding them on Twitter? Like, kind of, what what does that typically look like for you? Yeah, typically it's going to be one of the social media platforms. You want other people to see it as well. So you're, just email doesn't doesn't really work for that. It's going to be a Reddit comment. It's going to be a Hacker News comment. It's going to be a Twitter reply or something. You know, I, I even leave good comments on YouTube just because like I want to encourage 
content creators that I like to to keep to keep doing good stuff. So I don't know. It's just it, yeah. It's it's wherever that that person hangs out the most. And for a lot of developers, it is Twitter. But it is where, wherever wherever you want to be, you know. And if you want to host it on your on your own page, uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, just send a link to it, and people can reshare it. Um, and then you can start a newsletter of like, here's the five cool cool things that I did. And eventually, like, people will start noticing that you're 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 doing that curation work, and you're you're providing good summaries. That's that's a really good that's a really good way to bootstrap an audience. I think the point is though, like, that's a lot of like other centered learning. You know what I mean? Like, you're sort of reacting to what other people do and think. That's a good way to start, but um, ultimately you want to be more sort of inward, like self-directed. Like, what do you need? What do you focus on? And sort of direct things that way. There's such a huge wealth of information out there, right? How do you, how do you like sort of survive among the deluge of like, you know, you're, on, you're in Hacker News a lot, right? There's a, there's a new 20 posts every day and you can't, you can't follow right. up on anything. So, so it's more about like understanding what you want out of developer communities at, at the same time there's like one global developer community but then there's also a billion small little ones which one of those that you really want to plug into um, and sort of targeting in on the ones that, that that are most helpful to you at that point in time um, so I think the the learning in public uh, sort of thesis is that whatever it is that that you're that you are interested in and want to learn um, if you like put out content based on that they will find you because you're you're going from like passive and then like slightly active commenter and, and remixer of, of content to like someone who creates stuff, and so you know you will be you will be imperfect. You know you, you will put out stuff that you're not proud of, but um, people will correct you because that's how the internet works. Like if if there's someone wrong on the internet, they'll come and correct you. And once you've gotten things wrong in public, you'll never forget it. So it like <laughs> just, you just learn really 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 quickly based on that. That's the that's kind of the whole thesis right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- if I understand correctly, it sounds like maybe when you first start out, you do this sort of, I think you were calling it picking up uh, what others put down, right? You are sort of helping others. I, I really want a shorter okay. word for that. I want a okay. shorter <laughs> word for that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like six words. Um, so I have, this, I have this thesis that every every slogan should should come down to two words, um, mm, but two I, words. Can't, okay. I can't reduce that any any further. So does uh, does learn in public count? Yeah, because in is a conjunction, so... Oh, okay, uh, okay, got it. <laughs> so learn, like always learn, and then public just kind of reflects, reminds you that there's a choice. Um, by default, we're trained to learn in, in private. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not advocating for living life 100% public, um, right. but it's, it's, it's possible to go from 0 to 5% and, and see a lot of benefits. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm kind of an outspoken advocate of, of that because it's benefited my own career so, so much. Like you were saying, you start with kind of remixing or kind of summarizing or kind of trying to provide feedback on things that other people make. And then maybe the next thing that you should do uh, is is figure out what you're interested in and and just write about those things or um, make videos about those things. Like however, however you want to do it, um, put out takeaways of what you learned and bring that to communities where people who work on that type of project are, whether that's like Reddit or that's Twitter um, Hacker News, uh, and so on. And and that's sort of how you start building up um, this community, I guess, for yourself, where there's people who are working on the same problems you are, who can provide feedback, and um, and that will help you just learn whatever you're trying to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'll give the first example that I really started doing this with was um, back in 2018 when... Um, Dan Abramov, who's like one of the most vocal members of the React core team, presented the essentially the future of React 
uh, at a conference, uh, JSConf Iceland in March. So that day, it, it live streamed. And then everyone's talking about it. This was like game changing for the React world. And I, I wanted to be better at React. So what I did was I stayed up that whole night, transcribed his talk, walked through the entire demo that he did with all the source code and commented every, every part of the source code and then posted it the next day. Obviously, he read through it, right? Because it was about his talk. Um, and so did everyone else follow him, right? Because I was, I was the first one out with, with the full mm-hmm. analysis. And I was a scrub back then. I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything. Um, and I got some things wrong and I was corrected. But like, that was, you know, if, if people want to look that up, it's, it's right there. It's just, just uh, Google for my React suspense walkthrough. Um, but like, you know, I think that's, that's what you're doing now, right? You're, you're, um, you're picking up, like, you saw that I, had a, I was working on a book. Um, and then you were like, "Hey, let's let's have a chat on this podcast." And and of course, I have to respond. And, and now I'm here. I'm not I'm not doing it out of a sense of obligation. I was just like, "Hey, that's really nice that someone noticed and is willing to have me on this on this podcast for for this thing." I will do whatever I can to provide a good interview and 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 share whatever I can I can help with, you know. So I, I think I think it's just like a mutual exchange of value. Even though like you may look up to that person and like. You know, you're like, what do I have to offer that guy? And uh, you do, you have a lot. <laughs> and sometimes it's just your energy and your enthusiasm and, 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 your, and the platform that you're building. And, and um, everyone can do that, you know? It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so like one of the other things in the post that you do is you, one of the things you talk about is deciding what to bet on in terms of technologies, you know, as a part of your career, as a part of... Um, the things that you want to work on. So what's kind of like your strategy for for betting on technologies? Yeah, so there's a whole chapter on this. <laughs> um, so first, so my own my own strategy is, I guess it changed over time, but um, I do like to be a little bit earlier on things than others. Uh, but it really depends what your risk preference is, right? So the earlier you are, the riskier the project is because it's going to be rougher, right? It's going to be less well tested. It might not, it just might flat not work out, and you might have invested a bunch of time and money on on it. First of all, like I think, I think people overestimate downsides. Like even from a, you can learn a lot from a failure and still reapply it on the next thing. Um, but I, I definitely prefer to be earlier. Um, and there are a lot of other people. So Charity Majors, who's the CTO of Honeycomb, I actually interviewed her for, for a thing on my, on my blog. She's fond of saying like betting early on technology and on a, on a technology that's emerging and clearly like doing well um, made her that person. So, she, so for her, she was the MongoDB person. For me, I, I think I was, I was like the React and TypeScript person for, for two years. And that really like established like your domain. Like even though you're, you're, you're like, that's, that's not all of what you are, but like, um, being about a certain technology that's that's kind of earlier on, and then people kind of flock to you because you're you're kind of like that that community discussion point. Um, that's very beneficial for your for your for your career. So like if you're, if you're early in your career and you're not really sure like what to bet your bet your, bet your career on, um, something that's emerging that's that you feel like has a lot of, has got a lot of potential. I think that's that's really um, something that is worth betting on. Uh, in terms of your your own projects, I like to use what Thoughtbot does, which basically revolves. I don't know what they call it. Um, I haven't been able to find a good source, but I, I think I, I call it a strategy, like an innovation credit. Basically saying that um, you should have a tech stack that you're familiar with, right? But then in every project, you're allowed to, to, to try new things on one part of the tech stack. And then everything else stays, stays the same. With, so it contains the risk on the project because uh, for, for ThoughtBot, they're an agency, so they have to deliver by a deadline. And so if they pick something that's too volatile and it just blows up their project, then they don't meet their, their client 
deadline, right? So that's 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 unacceptable. The the core idea is that you should have one stack that you're very familiar with that you can get most things most things done, and then keep innovating because the, you're you're definitely not at the best possible point in your in your tech adoption curve. You know, things are mm. things are changing so quickly. That's the like uh, managing risk section where you just give yourself an innovation credit and you only pick one or two technologies to use. Then the other thing that I uh, I cover in, in that chapter because I've I've already written this chapter um, <laughs> is is um is a little bit about like know what's missing. So for me, like problems last longer than solutions. So like the core problem of like like writing apps on the web lasted before React and will last after React. Our understanding of the problem will last is is more important than the actual solution to 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 solve that problem. So I think um, when you pick technologies, like if you have that mental list built of like the problems that I really need solved, then you can really start spotting when a new sol- technology comes along that solves the thing that you really need better than what you had we have right now. Um, then you know to to go for it. Otherwise, you you just it's just an endless parade of names and logos, right? And you you can't tell one from the other. But if you have an evaluation criteria that involves something that you really experience and, and use, um, then it, then it's then it's really helpful. You're not just looking through Hacker News for Hacker News' sake. You're actually using it to 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 skim and see if something's come up that that really solves a problem that you have. Um, so the one way I do it because like it's hard to know what problems you have when you only know one system. So you often need to learn a, compet- a competing framework. So not learn in like full immersion, just like kind of dabble. Um, so like if you're if you're in Rails, you should look at Django. If you're in Django, you should look at Laravel, something like that. You know, like um, see how the other half lives. And I kind of call this exposure therapy because you'll probably find that a lot of things are the same. You'll probably find that some things are worse. You're like, why do you do that? Like, it's so easy in my thing. But you'll also find some things that are way easier in other platforms than, than yours. And you're like, why, why, why don't we have that? And, and that's a, probably a good question because no one's done it yet. Um, and that's an opportunity for you. You can, you can, go, you can go write that thing. Um, or you, can, you, might, you might say like, oh, this is so core that I'm actually switch stacks just to just to have that for for this particular solution uh, for this particular problem when it comes up so like it's kind of like that's how you start start to get into like right tool for the job by by having that exposure to other other languages other frameworks that's really you know powerful as, as especially as you get more senior like to know that the thing that you started with is probably not the end all solution and there's probably better out there. I mean, you just have to be uh, a bit exposed. And you can, uh, it's pretty easy to get exposure. Like I, you know, I listen to SE Radio and, and Software uh, SE, SE Daily and I watch conference talks and I, I don't have to go through the full, full tutorial to get to understand the ideas bef- behind what they're teaching. I, I'm going to skim a lot of things, but then go deep on some. That's pretty, that's pretty important. Uh, I also think it's important to like not, eval- so a lot of people, I saw, I saw this. Uh, have you heard of Redwood JS? I have, yeah, yeah. There was this guy on Twitter who was like, "Yeah, I looked at Redwood. Um, it's not as full featured as Rails. I'm, I'm not, I'm not. I don't think it's gonna work out." And I'm like, "Dude, like, Redwood just launched this year, and Rails is 16 years old. Like, don't evaluate. <laughs> it's gonna be worse. Um, but don't, sure. don't evaluate. Like, uh, I'm sure Rails looks like shit compared to whatever came before it. Like, at at the point of Rails inception, um, it's it's very common that in technology that like usually a lot of things are worse than." Like when a new thing comes out, a lot of things are worse than their predecessors. So they're worse in every way but one, and and that one, depending on how critical it solves, a, it solves a real need. Uh, that one is the one that, that actually works out, and then and then the the rest of the ecosystem comes in and fills out the rest. So I think that's yeah. that's super important. For for people who who aren't familiar with Redwood, could you kind of like just give a really brief explanation of what it is? 
Yeah, it's Tom Preston Warner's project. Um, he's co-founder of GitHub, so he's like super well off, and you know, he's, he's he just still wants to code. It's his attempt at building the rails for JavaScript that everyone wants but doesn't exist. Um, there are other attempts at it. Meteor was, was the most recent one uh, that kind of didn't really work out, but um, you know, it's it's his attempt, and he's building it on top of a, a whole new stack of like serverless technologies and other technologies. To me. It's too many innovation credits in, in that stack, um, like too many things that are immature. Um, mm. But he's taking a long-term view because he can, right? He's a billionaire, so <laughs> he can do whatever he wants. Um, but I think it's I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, I think it has innovations for, for React. So I, I had a blog post about it, how Redwood is, a, is actually the first framework that comes up with single file components for React. But I, I do think I do think that uh, a lot of technologies inside of it are still too immature, including mm-hmm. it uses Netlify, and I used to work in Netlify. Um, I I, don't, I I even think Netlify is still not mature enough for like the ambition of what Redwood uh, mm-hmm. becomes. But I don't diss it. I don't dismiss it right away because mm-hmm. I know it, it's this is what year one looks like in a project. You know, right? It's right. kind of like shaky. It's kind of like uh, I don't know. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about like Rails, I think that what excited people about Rails initially is, you know, there was that that demo that DHH gave the creator radio. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, create a blog in fifteen minutes. Like you were saying, if you compared it to, um, I, I think there probably would have been Spring. I think was the web framework on the Java side, and it probably sure. did like a lot more. It was a lot more mature. Um, but I think what excited people about Rails was DHH showing you that, like, hey, you can you can build this blog, and it has so little code compared to what came before. Um, yeah. You can get you know up and running really quickly. And so I, I think when there's new technologies for for me, like I'm you know looking for that, like what is the the big uh, benefit going to be more so than just. Um, here, here's this thing that we had in another language, and now it's in this language. Like, that's a little bit less interesting. But I, I kind of was curious what your your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like like I said, like it it solved a real problem that people had, which was like the the verbosity of Spring. Uh, I never, I've never messed with Spring, but uh, I like compared to that 15 minute demo, everything looks <laughs> like crap. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was it was really good demo, and I I'll be honest, I I don't think Redwood meets that bar yet. You know, for, for mm-hmm. the fifteen minute demo, yeah, I th- I think it's true. Like it, it resonated uh, with a lot of people just because it, it demonstrated that something was possible that people didn't really know was possible. You know, um, just with a, with more opinions and the flexibility of Ruby and all that, he definitely got it right. I, I think I think I also wanted to talk about like the the people factor. So like when you bid on technologies, technologies are driven by people. So like yes, uh, Redwood isn't there in year one, but. Um, because of the caliber of the team that's working on it, people are more confident betting on it because they're like, "Oh, I've I've seen this guy build GitHub," you know, and GitHub GitHub's a pretty big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. People behind the projects are the project, you know what I mean? Like, the the code almost doesn't matter. It's it's like, are these people solid maintainers of, of things? And do they, do they respond to ideas? Do they do they push out features in 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 a, in a in a reasonable fashion? Like, I think a lot of people treat technologies as like faceless things that are just like logos and GitHub projects, but really there are people behind them and they're working on uh, these things and um, they have motivations and they have uh, dreams, they have other things that they want to work on um, and evaluating technologies kind of involve all of that. Like the, how much, like what's the context of this project? Like how did it spring up? Like what problem was it created to solve? How does it plug in with the rest of the ecosystem because of the, the people that are working um, with with the project, so so that's kind of how I, I I think about like the people factor. Um, and 
as part of the people factor, there's also you. Like you are one of the potential people. And I think a lot of people kind of treat technology as like a hands-off thing. Like, oh, like it's not ready now. Um, I'll just give it a, a couple of years and come back and look at it. Um, they kind of treat technology as like this statically, like it, it's like a living organism that just like will just get better maybe hopefully without your involvement. But, but you can be a big part of that uh, improvement. Um, and that's actually like tying your career to an early part of that development actually is, is hugely important for, for some people's early careers. So I have this list, um, Jesse Frizzell with Docker, Charity Majors, MongoDB, Ryan Florence with React, Kelsey Hightower with Kubernetes. Like all these people were not, did not start those projects, but they just got involved super early and made it what it is today. They could, they could have just easily made that call and just say like, I, okay, it's not ready now. I'm just going to go away and, and then wait, for, wait a few years. But then they wouldn't have a name in the industry. <laughs> so like in, in terms of like betting on technologies with your career, I think there's that active, like you can get involved component, which I think a lot of people don't see themselves as qualified to do or don't even think about it because they're, they're just like, yep, someone's going to do it for me. You know, I, I'm just going to lean back and, and read tutorials when it's out. That's a valid and perfectly fine strategy. I, I do that a lot. But like, I'm just saying, like, if you want to make a big bet, like, get involved. You know, <laughs> best way yeah, to yeah. predict the future. Best way to predict predict the future is to create it. You know, when we talk about bets, we're we're talking in terms of like, which one do we think is going to succeed? And I guess what you're saying is that uh, potentially you could be a person that helps it succeed, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like, look, like it could fail, and you you could spend a whole big chunk of time on nothing, but. Everyone remember the, the passion and quality of work that you did in that failed project, and it and that transfers, man. That like it it doesn't it doesn't go away just because the project itself failed. Like people have a long memory, and your association with people will outlast companies and projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's fine. I don't. I really like the downside of, of betting on on in, uh, on tech is is not that not that low. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to. I have one more point on on this betting on tech project, which is uh, values. So values are destiny in the sense of like there's the code, and then inside of that there's the people, and inside of the people there's the values, and the, the values are are really what drive the ultimate destiny of the project, um, because that will involve every single decision that they make in in terms of code, but then also in like community maintenance. Um, in terms of marketing or whatever, right? Um, and ultimately, like, so Brian Cantrell, uh, who's who is CTO join and like super involved in the early Node.js community, um, was like, there's actually this like list of values and every language, framework, library, whatever, every developer community embodies some of these values to different degrees. And some of them, there's like a preference stack of, of values, right? Some of them like prefer simplicity over security. Like if you have to make a trade-off, which one, will you, which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the less secure option, but it's simpler so, so you get more adoption? Or are you going to choose more security at the, at the possible risk of, of less adoption? That kind of thing. So um, picking values that you agree with in technologies is like the ultimate like, First world problem, like oh, I have so, so many technologies. I'm gonna pick the one where I have I share the same values with. Um, so you don't you don't find it that often. Uh, but but this is why. So like the original creator of Node left Node, the original creator of Express left Express, and they all went to Go because they they shared those those values more. Um, Brian Cantrell himself left JavaScript to to go to Rust. So like people pick communities because they're gonna have just have a much easier time. Um, making decisions together because like you're you're picking up technology at a point in time, but then also you have to live with the technology for like I don't know ten years, hopefully if if you're lucky, you know like and and that's a and that's a community of, of values that you're buying into. As developers, we don't like to talk about these like soft soft like wishy washy things, but it's real when like your PR gets rejected 
because like it doesn't agree with like you don't you just fundamentally don't agree with the maintainers on something. That means you just don't have the same values, and you might probably want to pick up different projects um, that reflects your values. And when you're talking about values, that's how that community runs itself. Is that kind of what you're talking about, or, or what do you mean specifically? Yeah. Um, so like it governs every decision and every action that that the community makes, right? So. Uh, it could be it could be like how do we RFC for new features? Is it an open process? Is it fully democratic? Everyone has a vote, or do only maintainers have a vote? Um, how do we fund our development? How much corporate shilling are we, are we going to allow? Um, <laughs> what happens when someone when once part of the maintainer team uh, starts being a bad actor? What's the process for removal of that person? Or if the com- community is just split halfway, how do we resolve conflicts? Stuff like that, just like for for new projects, it doesn't matter. But like when 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 money is at stake, it's not money. It's not just, it's not just money. It's like entire companies are built on this thing. Uh, it gets really really heated. Like what license do we adopt? You know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh my god, like we started this open source thing. And it was it was just for fun. But now like Amazon's like coming and and like competing with with like our thing. Like we need to change our license. How do we do that? Why not screwing over our existing customers? Like. This, these happen <laughs> and and like it, there's no right answer but like having a clear understanding of what the what the community and that maintainer core values means that you can help to predict or resolve those issues ahead of time and, and as long as you agree with them uh, then you're probably gonna have an easier time than if you disagree with them and, and you just have to like be dragged kicking and screaming along um, so sorry super long-winded and like not very relevant for like most day-to-day decision making but for the really core ones, you're going to have to think about all this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I think when a lot of people think about picking technologies or, or betting on technologies, they're thinking more on, you know, does it do the thing that I want? And, you know, is it popular? Are there a lot of stars on GitHub or something like that? But there's there's a lot more kind of nuance, I guess. Stars are a proxy, right? Of uh, Usually, like, at first, it's, at first it's like, okay, the quality of the project, but then... Um, after that, it's like, okay, this maintainer's done cool shit before. He's a celebrity, so we're just going to star everything else that he does. Um, it's, not, <laughs> it's not very indicative of anything. Right, right. So, so it's kind of looking more at some of the more surrounding things, like you said, the, the values, like how do they treat contributions, looking at the people who are a part of it, you know, what have they worked on before, looking at the community, I guess, like, you know, are there people actively uh, using it and are they helping one another and things like that. And that kind of helps you build sort of this this picture, I guess, of whether this is something that is worth checking out or not. Yeah, ultimately, like knowing your, knowing what you want out of technology, like is going to guide you to the right decisions, you know, every time. Because there's technology for every type of use case and people, personality and community out there. And there's no way that you're fit for all of them. Um, so you just got to gotta figure out what you want, you know. And how about like deciding um, what kind of things to to jump off of? Like you know, uh, one of the things I, I know that you had worked with previously was was Meteor, which it still exists, but is is maybe not as um, popular as it once was. Like, what are the decision points uh, where you decide like, okay, maybe I'm going to go try something else now? Yeah, Meteor is a slightly complicated thing because like I I, I know I know you know Scott Talinsky and some small. Uh, part of like the people that I know still use and love Meteor. Um, the problem I had with it, so it's twofold. So the most immediate problem was that uh, Meteor chose this like very 
antagonistic approach to package management. They inv- invented their own package manager and basically everything that you use had to be within that ecosystem or else, you know. And so that's very hostile to like the rest of NPM and JavaScript in general. And that was just very annoying. Like it's like, oh, I need a Meteor version of this. Sorry. Uh, whatever. And and uh, and then the other thing was that it was like kind of too opinionated. It like had its own framework, front-end framework on, on top of having its own back-end conventions. And those were unnecessary layers to debug. And it was kind of like unnecessary magic over and above existing technologies, which I already did not know well. So the solution to that was to strip away that abstraction and just to go one level lower and learn those things well and return to Meteor if I ever needed it. Uh, but then I never needed it. So that's <laughs> I kind of went away from it. Um, yeah. And ultimately, like I think for my early career, I uh, it was the right choice, but it was kind of mercenary, which was just like biased towards whatever the job market wants. And the job market wasn't asking for Meteor, so I didn't, I didn't go for it. But I, I, did, I did have a contract. Uh, I did like do like a freelance thing for, for Meteor consultancy once. Um, and yeah, it's great. Like, you know, like Meteor does a lot of things well if you stay within its path. Kind of like, I guess it's kind of like that Rails uh, idea. But once you want to do something that it doesn't plan for, then, then you have a hard time bending things. At least that was my impression at the time. I've never gone back. Uh, and I know it's I know it's under new ownership now. Um, but like in terms of jumping off, like when you start feeling that frustration, um, you know, there's probably something else out there that fits you better. Or you can just jump down one level of abstraction and just roll things yourself. Uh, and that's perfectly fine as well. For example, right now, I'm in this like weird transition between React and Svelte, right? Like I, I served as a moderator of the React Reddit community for two years. Uh, I have recently stepped down from that and I'm ramping up my efforts on the Svelte community side of things. And I kind of straddled it because like Re- React has a lot of company demand, but I think Svelte solves problems that I deal with in a really elegant way. But React is still important for, for cross-platform. So it's kind of like this weird, like if... X, then I'll use I'll use one thing. If Y, I'll do the other thing. Um, I don't have like a one hammer fits all policy anymore. But I think the 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 reason I jumped off, you know, coming back to your your original question was like the the reason for jumping off was realizing that there's better out there and it doesn't have to be this hard. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so like the the big decision point there is is in the projects that you work on, and even if you have a technology that you know and and know well. Once you start feeling like you're you're fighting it, or it's just very difficult to do what you're trying to do, that's when you start looking at at other options and and seeing like, okay, is there this other thing that I can jump to, that when I do hit these types of problems, that I can use that other thing instead. Yeah, hundred percent. Another thing I'd like to ask about is you've left Netlify and you're going to join Amazon. What was the the process like for you? And you know, I'm assuming you interviewed with a lot of different companies. How did you sort of decide what was going to be the right fit for you? Ah, um, it wasn't a public search, so it was actually more. I just put the word out in 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 uh, different companies that I was interested in, uh, and then other people heard. I, I didn't I didn't like do a wide search, and honestly, like Amazon kind of had it from the beginning because so about like a year ago, I wrote this idea down for how to do offline apps with GraphQL. Um, it was like a gist. I kind of like. Drew out the idea. I was like, I, I don't have time to work on this, but I, I'm just going to put it out there as an idea. Um, and then last November, Amazon announced it at reInvent as a feature. Then I was like, oh, interesting. Like somebody, th- somebody at Amazon thinks the way I do. And I was like, this is, this is fascinating. Like I never thought that 
I would agree with Amazon on anything. <laughs> 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 but like someone thought enough, thought about it enough, not only to agree with me, but then also built it, which like, you know, to Amazon standards, which which uh, you know is a significant investment, because they 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 never uh, close anything; they they always support things all the way back. So then then I, that that was the point at which I which I reached out to to Amazon, um, and I think the process was just more like. A series of cultural fit. Like I interviewed at other companies as well, and um, the cultural fit wasn't necessarily there as much as uh, Amazon was. Um, I, it was also like there's definitely an attraction or validation. You know, I'm not too shy to admit it that like working for a fan company is a big deal on on a resume. And I, I never I always worked at a small startup, scrappy startup, and the way that we think about enterprise usage, enterprise users, and customers is wholly different from like a big cloud enterprise. Like that's real enterprise, you know? And I was kind of, I was, trying, I was basically interested in learning more about like, like how do the big boys do it basically? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if that's like a valid concern or not, but like there's always this imposter syndrome of like, you know, I, I don't have a traditional background. I never worked at a big uh, fan company. So so I think this was just like a nice like attraction. I'm, re- I'm very drawn to the idea that Amazon like, you know, is now for for front end developers as well. Like I never, as a front end developer myself, I never really felt welcome in on the AWS console. And now that is is investing so heavily um, in terms of like all these front end services, I thought that was that was very interesting. And it's out of the box more full featured than what I was working on at, at Nellify. So I kind of I kind of basically thought of the job as basically exactly what I was doing at Nellify, but with infinity more to learn and. In, in terms of like what I wanted to be learning and what I wanted to be sharing with uh, with people, um, I thought Amazon was a good fit. Like I, I expect Amazon to outlive me. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> so um, <laughs> knowing things that are that are that are long lasting, I call this um, Lindy compounding. So do you know do you know what the Lindy effect is? No, I don't. So the Lindy effect is the is the you're you're probably more familiar with it. In, in terms of the phrase, like the longer something has been around, the longer you can expect it to last. You know what I mean? Mm, like, okay. usually sometimes people put it in a bad sense, like, oh, okay, if, if you've been waiting, it, if you've wait, been waiting for the bus for two, for two hours, you can expect it to, to you know, to not to, come, <laughs> to, to not come for another two more hours, right? And then yeah, it, yeah. Just like it grows instead of, instead of uh, declining the, the longer you wait. But like the Lindy effect is, is important for like things that we work on because in technology, a lot of things that we do have has a very short half life. Um, like it, it has value now, and then it declines, right? And it's it's fine. It's you know everything has everything declines. But um, the longer we can make something last, then the more we can build on top of it, and we can grow by compounding upon the work that we did before. That just like seems a fundamentally sensible way to run things. Um, and that's why I'm very interested in things that last. And that's why I write. That's why I, I, um, I try to do podcasts because like people a year from now, two years from now can still come by this thing and still get value out of it. Instead of like, there's a lot of like people who pivot into like, um, here's the news of the week that lasts a week, exactly a week. You know, that's not even your half-life. That's, a, that's your full life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's terrible. Like, and, and, and so, so the, the idea of Lindy compounding is that you compound by working on things that last for a long while. And one way to, to bet on things that last for a long while is just you look, look around for things that have been around for a while. So it's kind of like the diametric opposite of betting on new technologies. Like mm-hmm. I've, done th- I've done that part. You know, let's, let's do the, let's do the uh, things that have been very stable and very, very, um, very long-lived for, for, for now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that's I think that's a very interesting way to compound the the skills that I have because like probably your knowledge of S three will last your entire lifetime, and that's that's something mm-hmm. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's interesting. Like I, I was talking to. Daniel Vassallo on another episode and he worked at yep. AWS for a while and he was kind of saying like there are certain services within Amazon that yeah you can like you can totally rely on because they've they've been around so long like like the example you gave S3 right or DynamoDB and so it's like once something has been around long enough um people can trust it and it further kind of puts it in stone that people can keep using it right and yeah. i i wonder like one of the other things that I thought was interesting is you were talking about how Amazon previously wasn't really, I don't know if the word would be friendly to front end developers, but it's like, yeah, I'll, you I'll go to, yeah. yeah and, and you go to that AWS console. And I would, I would argue, like, not even just for front end developers, but for, um, you know, full <laughs> stack or back end developers, right? Like, I, I, like, something I can think of is uh, as somebody who has worked with Rails, right? Like, we're kind of accustomed to being able to go to Heroku, Heroku and, yeah. uh, and push like our code. And then Heroku kind of puts it all up and sets up the database and the web server and all that stuff. And it's kind of all abstracted away. But yet, when you go to Amazon and you look at the menu, there's like, you know, a hundred services or whatever. Yeah. And you're kind of like, I don't know, I don't know where to start. And then there's, there's all these, um, what's it called? The, um, what's the term for it? Yeah. The, all the IAM policies where you have to set up the security and you have to hook up all the different services together. And, and so I, I, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, is Amazon going to be able to, to move into the space that say, um, a Heroku or a Netlify or um, a Vercel, like these um, companies that are building um, on top of Amazon and providing like these really nice developer experiences. It, it sounds like you think Amazon's going to try and move into that space, or I'm kind of wondering where your head yeah, is with that. It's it's already yeah. It's it's I think it's about two years into this uh, move. Uh, mm-hmm. It's apparently going well. That's what I'm told. Um, I, I'll, I'll really see when I join, but um, sure. yeah, and, and I'm, I'm a little bit casting in my lot and and saying I'll be a part of that. You know, like I like I said before, like you kind of have to be an active participant in in the thing that you're trying to to promote. Um, I don't think I don't have you know I I, I don't kid myself uh, that Amazon will ever compete with um, Heroku or Netlify or or uh, Vercel on like the the limits of developer experience, like. Um, Amazon will never win a design award, you know. Um, no one will ever gush about the console or anything. It doesn't have to. It just has to be good enough. And and then there's the other benefits. Like there's there's a trade-off to like all that like custom standalone startup awesomeness, which is that you don't have the maturity of the the, the rest of the platform. Um, and when you need to scale, you can't. You you just have to migrate. And that's that's unfortunate, right? Like, but uh, that's just that's just how startups have to have to make their way with things. Um, I think um, Amazon has some potential as, as kind of like the only underlying layer to let people onboard um, and, and scale um, as, the, as, they get to, as they get to a certain size. So I think, I think that's, a, that's an interesting thing to bet on. Um, I'm personally not even betting on that. I just think it's fascinating that like Amazon's even trying in the first place and I want to be a part of that. <laughs> but also, also just like learn everything that I, that I can and, and, and share with, with people like, because like people fundamentally want to learn Amazon. Like I've just realized this after a while, like despite all of its messiness and like complications, like yes, onboarding sucks. 
And yes, the initial developer experience sucks. But you know what else also counts as developer experience? Like whether the service just sticks sticks around forever, uh, whether it has really good uptime, whether it has uh, predictable pricing that that never goes up, it only goes down. Um, and that's Amazon has like has like a twenty year track record of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's I'm like so so I'm like yes, you can do a, you can always do a lot better on the initial experience, but then. There's, it's not just the initial experience as well. It's also the the subsequent experience of mm-hmm. like, well, I need this thing, and oops, uh, the platform that I chose doesn't have it, and and like and that's fine. It's, and and you know like that's a trade off that that everyone has to make for themselves. But like it's nice to have a platform that just has everything by default, and then um, the 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 thing that you suck on is the initial experience, which is fixable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of that's how kind of how I view it. I might regret these words later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's it'll be interesting, um, you know, from your perspective once you get into it, right? And then you actually start to see, okay, what is the what is the process of of getting a feature built at Amazon, right? And and getting to figure out, like, okay, are there ways that we can improve that onboarding or improve that developer experience or are these like or are are there just a bunch of things that are happening that you're just not aware of yet and that those things are what makes it so difficult to to have that you know great experience from the start yeah i i I mean on on the company process side of things like i i'll tell you like everyone in the valley like everyone in, in 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 startups idealize the way that amazon works right like uh have you heard of the the two pizza teams i have yeah yeah Right? Um, have you heard of the the six pager, the Amazon PR six pager thing? So is that where like, if you have a new feature, then you you write like six pages and you write the press release before you actually code? Oh, okay, 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 got it. Right. So the, these are just like accepted, like these are best practices, which like I'll be honest, at Nellify we we didn't we didn't even do that, um, mm-hmm. but like the understand like everyone understands that this these are just like good ways of working and. Mm-hmm. And so, like to me, I'm, I'm like fascinated by. Like, I just want to see it in practice. I want I want to go to like the source and just see like because as as badly as Amazon does a lot of things, um, they get a few things right. And this is what uh, Steve Yagi. Um, in, I don't know if you're from. You're probably not. But uh, Steve Yagi had, had this like Google Platforms rant. Did you? Did you? I'll, I'll send that. No. Nah. <laughs> um, because like everyone should should read it. Um, it's amazing. But basically, he's like, yeah, Google does everything right. Amazon does everything wrong except for one thing, and then and he's just gonna kind of list a bunch of things. That that's a little out of date now, but I think it's still it's still fundamentally true that Amazon is very strictly run according to a few a, a small set of principles that um, I personally strongly identify with. So the interview was completely not a challenge for me because I was mm. just like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, this is I, I love this stuff. Like, um, uh, which like people make fun of because like one of the interv- one of the the principles is just ridiculous. Uh, one of them is like uh, be right a lot, like great. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how how does like, that help? <laughs> it's like yeah. How do, uh, do I choose to be wrong? No. <laughs> um, but anyway, I think I think uh, they live by the principles, and, and one of them is is like the two pizza th- team thing, the six, the six pager thing. Like I've mm-hmm. been already like even as an outsider, I've already been inundated by like yes, this is a real thing, and yes, we live by that. And and that customer obsession is 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 interesting, like because it doesn't show up in the design for sure, but it shows up mm-hmm. in like other things that matter, like uptime and pricing and, and mm-hmm. uh, availability zones and what what have you. So like it's it's an interesting, it's just like a new thing for me, like and I'm just like drowning in like 
everything's new and i've like mm-hmm. i've gone from working like the the biggest company i worked at it was 200 people and now mm-hmm. it's like 800,000 you know right. <laughs> so 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 i i definitely look at this as like i don't even know fully what i'm getting myself into mm-hmm. uh, and that's exciting to me cuz you know I, I i definitely think of that as a learning experience mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a good point in that like when someone's looking into taking another job or taking another position your background is you've worked at a lot of startups that have been relatively small teams. And so when somebody's thinking about making a move, like they might consider like, oh, maybe I do want to try like a giant enterprise or I want to try a thing um, just so that I get to see how people there work differently than what I'm accustomed to. Because, you know, you may you may go in and you may hate it, right? But you won't really yeah. know until you kind of jump in and, and sort of see how things work, right? So that's that's an interesting sort of uh, additional factor to to think about when you're picking a job. Yep, yep, for sure. Um, I'm also like kind of viewing this as me generalizing a bit. So uh, at this at this chapter, I guess one one of the questions in in people's tech careers is like, how much of a specialist versus a generalist do I, do I want to be? And for me, I think the advice that I've landed on is when in doubt, specialize. You'll be, you'll be called upon to generalize when you're needed anyway. So when in doubt, just specialize because there's, there's benefits to being, to being an expert in one thing. Because like when you're a generalist in a lot of things, um, then you're just really good at starting a lot of tutorials. And you don't really mm-hmm. know how to get past that and get past the, the trough of like, uh, I don't know anything to like the, the mastery level where you start making the tutorials that other people depend on. I, I understand the front end, front end fields enough. Like obviously I don't know everything. But it's enough that I can probably figure out what, how to do whatever I need to do at any given stage. I want to generalize a bit beyond just being a front-end guy to front-end and serverless and AWS stuff and possibly any, anything beyond that. So I think maybe, maybe one way to, to phrase this is that you, know, you have a lot of, of lateral transfer opportunities within a large company compared to a small company where mm-hmm. you're just asked to perform one function. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think I think that's that's an interesting way to to think about career trajectories as well, because a lot of people think about like should I do startup versus big co. Definitely, in the household recognition helps. Brand name rec- recognition helps. Once you've been through some a rigorous interview, like I I don't know if you've interviewed at Google, but like Google does do very rigorous interviews. So like once you are ex Google, no one really questions your ability to code. So that's that's great, and, and then then you can then you can do you know other more speculative uh, stuff with your career. Whereas if you're always from a small small startup, you're always going to be interviewed with like a whiteboard question, you know, mm-hmm. for the rest of your mm-hmm. life, um, <laughs> which is fine, but like it's annoying. <laughs> so I mean, I guess for for somebody who is you know coming out of university or coming out of a boot camp, I mean, given your experience, do you think it's better for them to start with a startup, or do you think it's better for them to to shoot for an enterprise or a thing? Ooh. Like, you know, kind of what's your thoughts there? Um, it really, uh, I don't know. That's an interesting <laughs> question. I'll, I'll talk about my, my personal preference. I probably would have preferred, uh, a big co to start with because, uh, the validation, especially from a bootcamp, you know, you're, you're not qualified goes away once you've, once you join a big co, whereas for a startup, mm-hmm. the, the, the question kind of always sticks around. I did not have that opportunity. I interviewed with Google 15 times. Uh, wow. But, uh, yeah, 15 times. There was two on-sites and, and they just like packed a lot in there. Actually, no, not, not 15 times. Nine times. So I'm sorry. I don't know where the 15 came from. That's almost like a superficial thing because at the end of the day, like it's, it just matters where you grow the most. And it really depends on your personality and, and how 
how much you fit with the with the team and like a good mentor at a small company beats a crappy mentor at a large at a huge company you know what mm-hmm. I mean? so so it's not always about career image it's also about like how much can you grow at that specific position and how much right. how much you're excited and and fueled by it for sure it's not going to be your last job you know um so you do have to like think about like the day day one that you land on on that first job you're you're also thinking about like do i enjoy this uh, what else exists out there how can I keep uh, sharpening my skills and, and, and broadening my, my interests um, to really find the thing that I want? Because it's, it's probably not going to be the first date that, that you find someone that you're going to marry for the rest of your life, you know? So <laughs> um, it, it's, it's kind of weird because like it's, it's a little bit like the, the process of finding a, finding a, a match. And, um, and we just have a lot less tries at it than, than in real life dating. It, we're, we're expected to like find our first job and then just kind of fall into it. But Really, like there's there's a lot more out there, and, and we might not find the right fit for for a while. I, I do think a lot of people in their mid careers, there's like you know some some sort of mid career crisis that some developers go through uh, because they they just like realize they're not that passionate about the thing that that they've been sort of typecast into from from junior mm-hmm. to all the way to senior. Like keeping a wide focus, wide angle of like uh, what else is out there is important, especially as you as you start out. I don't care that much where people start. I just care that mm-hmm. it's a good environment for them to grow. Um, right. And that they and that they start growing their network as well. Because I think like when you're when you're early on, like it really is about your coding ability. But as you grow more senior, it's less and less about your coding ability. And more about like the like communities that you're involved in, like the 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 architectural decisions that you've been through and under, understood, and like the the people that you can that you know and can hire to to work with you mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is is also is also important. Yeah, and, and so when you're at your positions, like you join a new job, what are kind of the ways that you can sort of maybe optimize your time there? Like whether that's trying to make sure that you can learn the most as possible from your coworkers or try to get mentorship or like what are, what are sort of the strategies that you would ask people to consider? All right. So, so I, I kind of split this as like junior dev versus senior dev. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't written the senior dev part, but, but I have some ideas. The junior dev part, this is your time to not know anything. You should ask all this, all the you know, air quotes, stupid questions as as possible because like they're, they're, that's the responsibility of your managers to train you. Um, and some people have screwed up. Some people have like destroyed their production database on day one of, of the job. Uh, and guess what? It's not your fault. You know, it's it's the fault of the managers for not building a resilient system uh, to recover from that or to prevent you from being able to do that in the first place. The other strategy I think I, I like to encourage people is to pair program. There's just so much that you can pick up just from osmosis of like having a mind merge while you code and then someone can watch over you and then just, or, or, or you watch over them coding, right? And then you can see the, all the little tips and tricks that they do. Uh, and that levels you up very quickly. In fact, some, some companies like Pivotal actually always pair program and that's, that's very high stress because it's a lot mm. of talking, but... That sounds uh, exhausting. <laughs> well, also like it's, it's just like really, you just don't have distractions because yeah. someone's looking over your shoulder. <laughs> But it's great. I I I pair program a few times at, at Nellify and it was awesome. And then once you once you start being able to get other people in your head, that's one way of like emulating them. Like you start having a senior developer in your head, right? And you go like, what would they do? What would X do? What would Y do? When, when you come when you come to a certain situation, and that's and that's valuable at least for the code review. Where when you send in code, you can you can sort of step back from yourself and go like, all right, have an out of body experience and go like, okay, now I am the person reviewing my code. What are they likely to say? And you can review your own code pro- proactively, and show them that you're learning. Show them that you're picking up 
not just the ability to code, but the, the ability to to integrate with and mind meld with the rest of your team, uh, and that's that's a really awesome way of of uh, thinking about that. So that's that's in terms of like finding a groove. Then there's also like um, trying to add value, and essentially, I try to phrase it as like you should be a problem sink, not a problem generator. This is hard to do at, at the start, but basically, like people should be able to give you problems and you solve them. And you sh- there should be no new problems generated from your work. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just adding problems, <laughs> right. right? The buck stops with you in that sense. And so the, the, the more capable you are, the more people realize that when, when they have stuff to do, they can, th- they can assign it to you and it will be done. That's probably like the most immediate value. Um, you can be proactive about that. So you don't always have to sit there and just like kind of wait for things to come your way. Uh, you can actually ask to be assigned uh, to projects that, that you want to work on. Often it's doing the things that nobody else wants to do that ends up making you indispensable. Because A, it has to be done anyway. And B, nobody else wants to do them. So if you're the one doing them, then you now own it. And you're indispensable now because you're the person that owns that. And guess what? Like you can make anything interesting. The most mundane things. Like let's talk about tests. Like the best thing, the best way to start a new job is to write tests because you, you cannot break the code base. In fact, you're doing the opposite of breaking the code base. You're making it more re- resilient. You're not just writing tests. You're also removing and changing outdated tests. Your coworkers will be grateful. There's never enough tests. Like when, whenever you have to ship versus writing more tests, you ship, right? And then, and then you go to the next thing. So as so much as we all like to, to say that we believe in testing, we, we don't always test everything. And so as, a, as, as someone new, you can, you can always contribute more tests. You can learn the code base and you can learn the product. So you, you probably, as a user, you, you've like used the product that you're working on, but you only see things from your perspective and you don't see all the hundreds of edge cases that, you, that you're also handling for, let's say, enterprise clients, which you're, you're not. The writing tests is a non intrusive, non-invasive way of like contributing value to the code base. And I think that's a highly profitable thing. I have some, I have some links from like people who've used this strategy in Netflix and Ionic and Paytm. And I'm sure there's a lot of other companies where people have used this and they, they, um, they just didn't see my tweet at the time. But, but, I, but I basically <laughs> said like, write tests when you join a, when you join a code base. And once you find your groove, you're, you're basically starting to go from reactive, like things come into you and you work on them. To proactive, you you start to ask to be assigned on strategically important projects where your profile will rise according to the project they work on. But that's one way of like ensuring that you have impact because if you look at all the engineering calendars out there, so um, I actually went through and and collected all the public engineering calendars that people put out, also blog posts. Uh, but basically, if you look at all of them, they all evaluate engineers based on business impact, which is like weird because you don't really have any control of that. You just write code. But you have control over the projects they work on, and, and it's up to you to, to position yourself. It's a little bit of politics, uh, but it's more like how much do you understand what the company's core business is, and how much do you support that effort? And obviously, you contribute more value if you if you help to to you know uh, work on the mo- company's most essential projects. So you want to do that, right? Um, and then there's all the other like meta learning stuff around um, around the actual work. So there's like reading technical books, like reading framework source code, learning more languages, uh, following people over projects. So the projects that you use, probably just projects to you, but then there's people who work behind them, start following them. You should also be working on useful side projects. So basically I have like this whole long list of like things which are probably super unrealistic for any real person to do. But uh, these are just ideas that people can pick off of. Of Like, mm-hmm. like hey, I'm, I, I feel like I should be doing more. Uh, here's a list. I do strongly... Uh, encourage people to do talks because doing talks is kind of like the ultimate skin in the game of learning because 
your face is there when you do the talk. So uh, when, I, when I say do talks, like obviously there are no conferences right now, but you can do uh, meetups, you can do little like brown bag lunches at work or to your family or to your dog, to your YouTube channel, I don't care. But like the, the, the process of like going through and teaching and speaking uh, really solidifies it in your, in your brain. Uh, it's that whole learning and public process, but um, you can do it at work and uh, people really appreciate you for that. Um, in fact, uh, Matt Gersman, one of my uh, friends in New York, he started the JavaScript Guild at Dropbox. And so like he got it to a point where he organized an internal conference for like a thousand of his colleagues. Oh, wow. And they all, <laughs> they all flew in and he did talks and like, he, you know, he definitely raised his profile at Dropbox just because mm-hmm. of doing that. And it, was, it wasn't his job. He just did it. But like he's now viewed as the internal JavaScript expert, which is a huge position to be in for, for a company mm-hmm. like Dropbox. That's, that's awesome. Um, there's, there's other things like guest writing for industry sites, uh, blogging, answering questions. Ooh, So answering questions, like you don't know what you don't know. And one way to get past that is to answer other people's questions because then you get exposure to the things that other people who are not you run into. And then you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even know that I did not know that. You know what I mean? Like I, there's, there's no way I could have figured that out if I just didn't answer other people's questions. So on the React Reddit, we have 500 Q&As every month of like beginner questions and if you want to get good at react just go in and answer every question <laughs> right like yeah, yeah you scale yeah. you scale by just the number of people who are like throwing stuff at you and mm-hmm. and so if like work isn't challenging you enough there's there's unlimited questions on stack overflow and twitter and reddit mm-hmm. and GitHub issues mm-hmm. and you should just you know dive in and, and and help out for sure yeah that 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 was an interesting twist in terms of the the JavaScript uh, guild or, you know, like sort of the internal conference at Dropbox where, you know, you've been talking about this idea of learning in public, but learning in public could also include like the yeah. the company that you work for, right? Your network. I mean, yeah. you know, some companies are, some companies are tiny, so there's not much public to do. Mm-hmm, but when you're, right. when you're the size of Dropbox, I think we have like 10,000 people. Then mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you might have, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so like one of the things about your sort of career and your learning is that you have picked up so many different technologies and, and learned so many different things when you were learning. What were the resources that were the most helpful to you? Wow, that's broad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too broad. <laughs> um, um, more recently, I, I think I just really got into a groove of reading technical books from cover to cover. I think people mm-hmm. don't do this enough. Senior developers spend like, years of their life working on a book and then they sell it for peanuts. Right. You, can buy their exper- you can buy their expertise and just like read it. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, learned, I learned TypeScript that way. I learned CSS that way. I learned DynamoDB that way now because I just did Alex DeBree's DynamoDB book. Yeah, technical books are super unrated because like no one has the patience to like sit through a long form book. But as an intermediate developer, that's what you got to do because tutorials are targeted at beginners, right? Beginners want to go from zero to hello world as fast as possible. And then experts don't need a tutorial. They just need to know what changed. Like give me the change log and then mm-hmm. I, and I can figure it out. But the intermediate people, they know some things, they don't know everything. So what's the, what's the best way to like cover, like fill in the gaps, which is read the docs or read the book. I don't, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yes, you will find a lot of things that you're, you know. You can breeze past those, but you probably find a lot of holes that you weren't really sure about, like kind of skimmed over. Like you, you think like, I'll get to this someday. You never go back to it. Read technical books and, 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 uh, or read the entire docs or, or read the entire source code if, if you're ambitious. I, I, I don't recommend that for everything. But books you can definitely handle, right? Because books are made for you. To, to skim through, like probably take you a week, uh, 
two weeks, whatever. But like that will be a very high leverage thing because the amount of hours that went into preparing that is so different from like a podcast or like the, any of the like the the popcorny stuff that we do uh, on a day to day basis, right? That again, like books are Lindy compounding. They took a while to to create and they probably last longer than hack a day blog post that, that that we that we get. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually a, a really good example because you know when I think about. Uh, when I look online for how to do something, like you said, you'll find all sorts of blog posts a lot of the time, but they usually stay at kind of the very beginner level. Um, and sometimes you're not even sure if they're up to date or if what they're, they're teaching is still kind yeah. of uh, relevant. Were you going to say something? Yeah, because like Google wants you to believe that all knowledge is one Google search away. But like you get there, you get to a blog post and you're like, this doesn't exactly match up because the version's a little bit out of date. What do I do now? You're totally lost because you don't. You're not learning from first principles. You're just kind of copying and pasting. So what a book or some form of long focus study gets you is that the conceptual understanding to figure out anything that you need in terms of like from, from coming from first principles instead of just following instructions. And that's when mm-hmm. you become more of a software engineer rather than a software user. Like uh, I had this post like the day I became a software engineer. My job title was software engineer. I was not a software engineer because I was still like following other people's instructions, I didn't really have a conceptual connection with the thing that I was doing. But like once I started to like look at source code, once I started to understand conceptually what I was doing and figure it out based on first principles, um, then you're really doing software engineering, right? Like you're not, you're not just following instructions. You're not using other people's software the way they tell you to use it. You're really interacting with it on a conceptual level. Yeah, I mean, like books are a really good example because when I'm looking for things online, a lot of times I wish that there were more intermediate kind of resources or, or maybe even advanced resources. And, you know, because you'll have uh, a thousand posts on, on how to make a blog or something like that, but maybe not uh, yeah. posts on how to do this complicated thing in GraphQL, for example. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think books are definitely sort of underrated. Like a lot of people don't even think to <laughs> to go see if there is a book they can go read. And yeah, I'm kind of wondering, like from your perspective, are there also like other things that you think people could be creating, whether that's more technical blog posts or courses? Like what do you think that people should be creating or should exist in the world, you know, that would help people that are at that intermediate level or that advanced level? Right. Yeah. Workshops are a thing. You know, one one resource that definitely helped me was Front End Masters. They basically do video books in video form. They, and they just have the creator of the technology, you know, teach like a four hour or eight hour workshop on on, the, on their technology. Um, and that kind of covers it. Obviously, it doesn't have as much room for nuance as, as a book does, but different formats will appeal to different people. I definitely respect that. Some people just can't sit still for a whole book. So you can definitely create, you know, different forms of content for that. Uh, it's just that like books are well understood. They've they've existed for I don't know four thousand years, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we know how to we know how to deal with books, right? And, you know, yeah, it's, it's just yeah. the other the other forms are uh, of media a lot newer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I definitely think like I have this theme of like open source knowledge as well. That's a principle that that I'm expanding as well. So for example, um, my React and TypeScript cheat sheet that I started, um, it's not a book, but it's kind of a book. It's a repo that anyone can contribute. And basically, it just gets better over time. A book is something that one person or, or two people work on for an extended period of time, and then there's an indefinite end date, and then they ship it. And then maybe it's it's out for a while, and then it gets updated at, at some point. But like, it's not as live, it's not as current as something that's just always on. And like, Wikipedia is just like constantly updated, right? Wikipedia, like, 
is kind of like the ultimate version of like what open source knowledge is. Basically, mm-hmm. like we used to have encyclopedias that was curated by an expert team and those things just got destroyed at a fraction of their cost by Wikipedia, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone right. could contribute. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the idea of like open source knowledge. Like we have open source code and we understand that by open sourcing code, more people can look at it, more people can contribute and like write issues and, and it just is better after many eyeballs are on it. Um, mm-hmm. But why don't we open source knowledge? And books are kind of closed source knowledge, right? They, I'm the author of this book. I will make all the decisions. But like maybe mm-hmm. we, there should be something more collaborative um, that everyone can can sort of um, mark up, and and it, it just gets better over time, and mm-hmm. and everyone everyone can can access that. So I, I I do like this idea of like a more collaborative form of books. Um, it's mm-hmm. still a book, basically, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just I just kind of call it open source knowledge. Right. Like in some ways, it's kind of like. Maybe that could be the the docs for a project, right? Like maybe that could be the docs for a framework where the docs are so good that they get you the knowledge that you would have gotten from a book, but it's in the form of like a, a Git repo that other people can contribute to. I mean, people tend to think of docs as like something that is officially maintained by the by the team. You can only write for so many audiences at once, and you're going to mm. make some people some people unhappy. Right. Right. Um, so there's an unlimited space around the docs for community docs, essentially mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. X for Y, like MongoDB for JavaScript people, MongoDB for Ruby people. And then mm-hmm. it just can just really, really focus in on those use cases and, and do a good job of it. Again, not to not to go back on my example too much. But <laughs> it's the one I'm most familiar with. But when I was trying to learn TypeScript, the React docs did not have TypeScript docs because because they 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 supported Flow. And TypeScript right. did not have React documentation because TypeScript was focused on being TypeScript. So is that intersection of like, you know, people like me and like the, the mm-hmm. technologies that I want to learn. There's an unlimited space for those. Like every project has only one official documentation, but then there's there's, a, there's this unlimited space for unlimit, for unofficial documentation for different audiences, and people can do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's an interesting point about like people people all bring different contexts, right? Like they've worked with different languages or different frameworks before. And when somebody writes a book, like they have to sort of sit down and decide like, okay, what is my audience going to be? You know, like I'm going to write this book and there are going to be people who where this is great for them. And there's going to be people where the level is too high or the level is too low and it's impossible to, you know, to satisfy everyone. Right. So, um, I kind of, yeah, I kind of like your idea of like there being different communities building their own sort of public knowledge, I guess, of like, this is what we as a group learned and it may not match you exactly, you know, if you just find it on Google, but there is going to be a community that does understand it and can contribute and it's just, it can be a living document, like you said. Yeah. In fact, I think we could all do a better job of saying at the start who this is for. And mm-hmm. like, if it's very clearly not for you, then the reader can move on and we can be all happy. But like everyone tries to like write for everybody and it just like isn't, Random mismatch of like stuff, and we as readers we are wasting time because we we're trying to evaluate whether this is the right thing for me or not. Right. Um, we should always just like this is for X, and if you're not mm-hmm. X, uh, these are other resources that you can go to. We'd probably be better off as a community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean that's that's a good point because it, it kind of reminds me of looking up a tutorial for I don't know like say Rust or something, and then you you get to the tutorial and they go like, okay, this is what. <laughs> Um, this is what a variable is, or this is what a uh, for loop yeah, is. Yeah, you don't like, need that. <laughs> like, uh, come on. 
Exactly. So, so exactly, exactly this problem. Like TypeScript, the TypeScript tutorial when I started uh, was teaching people ES6 JavaScript, which I didn't need because I already mm-hmm. knew it. Mm-hmm. But it was like try to collocate these things at once, just trying to be beginner friendly or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not. I'm sorry, I'm not a beginner, and this yeah, doesn't help me at yeah. all. Yeah. So yeah, it just it just argues for diversity of docs, and more people should write should be writing everything. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> there's just an unlimited amount of things to to yeah, to get people yeah. involved in contributing, and and but mm-hmm. also like learning in public. It's a beneficial thing for them and and for the community. I can't I can't say enough good things because. Okay, so so first of all, the, the point I wanted to make was that the other feature of open source knowledge is that because it's evergreen, it's it's always it's always updating. Um, that means it's it starts to have Lindy compounding effects, right? So it's not just a one-off blog post. You're you're actually maintaining and keeping it up to date. I like that as a form of concrete form of learning in public because you're not creating and throwing throwing away your your work, and that's that's really awesome. Oh, the other thing is having things in your life where you know that you cannot possibly overshoot is a luxury. It means that you can invest infinitely in that thing. It's always better. Again, this is how much I, I like admire Amazon's principles. And so a lot of people ask Bezos about what do you think is going to change in the next 10 years? And for him, he's like, everything's going to change. What's more interesting is what is not going to change. Those are the things that you can invest in because everything else, if you invest in them and then things change on you, then your investment is kind of wasted. But the things that don't change are the things that you can really invest in for a lifetime. And that's kind of what he did. So for him, the examples were like the, the dumbest one, which was customers are always going to want lower prices. They want lower prices and faster delivery. They're not ever going to say, hey, I want higher prices or I want slower delivery. Right. Um, and based on that, he, you know, he built Amazon and, and Amazon Prime. For me, this idea of like everyone can do a little bit more in public, it's something I cannot overshoot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I can, just, I can just say it all day long and not get sick of it because I know that the more I can get people to do it, the more it'd be better for them and mm-hmm. better for like me, frankly, as a participant in the dev community. I want to see more people doing it. So having things you can't overshoot is really good. Right, because it, 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 there's never going to be a point where people are going to say like, "Oh, there's there's too many tutorials, there's too many guides." Like, there are I, I don't there, need there any are more people. Help. There are people who say that. Um, mm. There are. Um, I think that can be true, but you, you're probably like paying too much attention to beginner level stuff because mm-hmm. you know I get it. Like, I'm an intermediate or advanced person, and I see a mm-hmm. bunch of beginner tutorials all day long on my Reddit. But it is helpful for someone out there who is a beginner. Um, and all I have to do is ignore that and find better sources of info for myself. Just get get better at curating your own info stream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not that there's too many. It's that maybe the fact that there are a lot makes it harder to find the ones that you care about. And that's kind of, like you said, more of a, a curation or a search problem. And I'm not I'm not yeah. sure how how we solve that. Yeah. Look, like don't center your entire basis of learning on tutorials all the time. That's it. If if like if your learning strategy is like someday the perfect tutorial will come along and I will become a better developer because of that, stop. Just mm-hmm. <laughs> stop. You get better. Yeah. <laughs> Go read yeah, books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I, t- I, t- I tell you, there's not enough books. You know. So uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's a good point. Like you, you can't always hope that somebody is going to have put in the work to do that tutorial or answer that Stack Overflow question for you. Like you, you do need to build that that solid base, um, and then you know once you figure it out, then hopefully you'll write the uh, you'll write the tutorial, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. But are is there anything else that you do you wanted to mention or you wanted to plug? Um, no, I, you know I'm still working on this this book. It was supposed to be a two week project, and then I like started really getting into it. 
So I don't really have a book to plug. I just hope that people try to go from 100% private to, you know, putting something out there is out there. It's now more important than ever that, you know, you start to be able to market yourself as a developer, as a senior developer. If you're a junior, you want to market yourself as a senior. And you want to disconnect your income and your influence from your hours. That's wealth, basically. You're building wealth by uh, disconnecting that so that everything that you leave in public out there works without your presence being required anymore. So like as, as developers, a lot of us like sell our time for coding, right? But we never really think about the people who buy our services for, with money and use that to, to do something more valuable than, than what we have. And they, they use it, for example, to, to write sites and apps. And we should try to build for ourselves as well in, in whatever form. For me, it's been content. I've been relatively successful with writing and, and, and speaking. Uh, but for others, it might be an app, like a side project or whatever. But we should always think about like, how to make most use of our developer talents. And it's almost a guarantee that you're being undervalued by your employer because that's just fundamentally how this works. Like they pay you less than they get from you, which is which is a fair trade. No, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. like you should always be thinking about like how can you be improving on that, right? So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully, hopefully people can figure that out for themselves. I'm still figuring it out. So it sounds like maybe uh, maybe in a, a year or two we'll be seeing uh, Swix Incorporated, right? I, I I mean, I'm committed to Amazon for at least four years. I think this book thing is has some legs though. You know, I've been I've been blocking for like a year-ish. But like people like understand that I put out quality work. Mm-hmm. And then so then I when I announced I was launching this book, I didn't have a book to sell, but people understood that I was gonna put out something of quality. Basically what I'm trying to say is I, I sold an empty PDF for $4,000. And there's something there where everyone can have some sort of side hustle where they monetize their ability to, to write and to, to teach. You know, for Egghead, like I, I've done some Egghead tutorials and that comes in, I think, like 500 a month. I haven't really mm-hmm. done that much, but uh-huh. like you, you, could, you could do something, you know, as, a, as yeah, an instructor, yeah. as, a, as, as a professional developer, someone finds your coding ability of value and you can mm-hmm. definitely, you know, share that more widely. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And then that that also hopefully kind of builds your ability to communicate and to write. And, you know, that can apply to any type of position or any type of work you do in the future. Yeah. 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 The trap that I find myself in is that I don't want to give everyone the impression that they need to go down this path because this is very much a uh, like a person who writes books and is uh-huh. a developer relations person. Right, right, right. Uh, right. And, not, and the vast majority of developers are not that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think their their own careers and their own learning can be enhanced by by doing this stuff, even if they don't mm-hmm. have direct financial benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Like I call you know some of these blog posts that I do uh, friend catchers, which is basically things that earns you friends in your sleep. Like this podcast is a friend catcher because uh, after I'm done recording this, you're going to put it out. And people a year from now will hear will hear about it. They'll know who I am. They'll, they'll come contact me, and and that's decoupled from my time, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is a good use of time because of that. And and like I I, th- I think everyone can can think about ways in which their workflow can be improved by by having some you know decoupling from from their time and their and their income. That's kind of all I have yeah. to say on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like you said, whether it's podcasts or conference talks or or blog posts that sort of thing those are the kinds of things that can keep helping people you know long after you finish them and can get you in touch with new people so that that makes a lot of sense 
Oh, I, I got one more for you. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and sorry, I don't, I don't want to like take too long to close up. But uh, basically, I, I had this whole section on strategy, like business strategy. So as a developer, like you, you spend a lot of time learning about the art and science of coding, uh, like art and science of creating software. But um, mm-hmm. you should also spend some time learning about the business of software, like how people make money off of your work. And so I have this section on like, the basic business models like advertising agencies, uh, marketplaces, SaaS, and people should understand the economic imperatives of like what these things are. Uh, not least because you want the company that you join and have options or, or RSUs in to do well, but you also want to be able to put yourself on strategically important projects that will have impact, right? You want to be able to, to suggest features that say like, hey, this would be really easy for me to implement. So it's not it's not technically your job because your PM is supposed to do that or your CEO is supposed to do that. Uh, but you as someone who touches the code, have has you have enormous power over what the final output actually looks like because you're like, hey, this is low-hanging fruit. I can actually put put that in there. You control so much because you you control the tech stack. You estimate you know the cost of relative projects. You know you can actually say like this is really easy compared to the relative impact that it's going to have on, on the business. Um, and so I think everyone should understand like business strategy to some extent because it directly affects your career. Um, you want to be some you know in something that is strategically important to the company. You want to invest in mega trends that are going to last your entire career, so you can so you're at least early on them. Um, so yeah, these are all things that we discuss. I, I realized this only like halfway through because I was like, oh. I'm like in this weird spot of being in like a really good position to write about this because I'm a developer. Plus, I used to invest in tech stocks as a, from a hedge fund point of view, and, mm-hmm. and I have a finance degree and all that. Um, so I should probably write this down because <laughs> uh, no one else talks about this, right? I, I look at I've looked at other career books, and I was like, I was like, yeah, you know, preparing a portfolio, writing your resume. No one actually talks about strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of like the next step from people when they work on a project, they they want to build something that's going to be useful to the customer, but then kind of taking it one step above that, right? And going like, what is the thing that is going to be bringing my company money so that I can pitch this to you know my manager or my yeah. technical lead? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think there's you know there's a founder in all of us, um, we, which we we you know we all we all we're all looking for like what we want to do next, uh, and obviously there's important strategy there. Look, I, I'm not the authority on any of this, right? I, I, I'm just like a random dude writing my thoughts out uh, at this point in my career. And I hope 10 years from now, I will, I will think I'm a total idiot and disagree with like majority of what I say because that, that means I won't have grown. And, but I, I hope that like these topics are at least like brought up in people's minds and, and they can actually at, at least start exploring it for themselves and figuring out what they, what they decide. And I'd love to have the discussion with any, anyone on this. Very cool. Swix, thank you so much for for chatting with me today. I think there's Thanks, a lot of there's a lot for people to unpack and a lot for people to think about uh, in terms of you know learning in public and what to do in their careers. And I think people are going to really enjoy it. Yeah, we went two hours. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jeremy. And that was my chat with Swix. If you want to see a good example of someone who documented their learning process, I highly recommend you check out a post by a previous guest. Federico Pereiro about how he writes backends. Many people from around the internet reviewed what he wrote and gave him productive suggestions. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. We talked about a lot, so don't forget to check out the Software Sessions website for transcripts. All right, see ya.